Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this podcast, continuing my discussion of significant philosophical thinkers, but in particular, how their philosophy overlaps with theology. Today, I'll address the work of Friedrich Nietzsche, whose wide-ranging work is a little bit, or it's been more difficult for me to get a handle on. Uh, And the individual, you know, Nietzsche was depicted as a gentle soul, uh, and yet writes in a kind of harsh manner so that there's a drastic sort of disparity between the the gentle, elegant, sensitive individual and uh, the nature of his writing. He's attempting to deal with suffering and his own personal suffering, but his existential suffering. And maybe that's what we remember his thinking for, is that for him there really is no significant thought apart from dealing with this suffering. At the same time, I think that uh, the darkness of the man, we sometimes forget that he also wrote a great deal on having joy alongside pain and laughter. He uh, dealt with the pain and suffering, but also the, the joy. He's kind of a hero for many in intellectual history because of his quiet, lonely attempt to deal with the soul with the mind, wherever you go, you know, that uh, he he's sort of there. He's been there before us. And his depiction of an uberman or superman, of course, is taken up in popular culture and in everyday discourse. And countless books have been written on Nietzsche in dozens of languages, but from nearly every perspective that there's the Maybe the most famous is kind of the French Nietzsche, the postmodern Nietzsche taken up in a, a deconstruction. But there's the American Nietzsche, kind of the pragmatist, the analytic Nietzsche, that Nietzsche is a contemporary of Sigmund Freud, 15 years older than Freud, and many will link the psychoanalytic project, in fact, the specifics of Freudian theory back to Nietzsche. Freud himself would deny that uh, he was influenced by Nietzsche, and yet uh, there have been entire books written linking these two things. Now, whether they're successful in making a, a direct connection, I think there's no doubt that there's certainly a parallel in thought. So there's the, the feminist Nietzsche, the gay Nietzsche, the black Nietzsche, the environmentalist Nietzsche. As a uh, Bertrand Russell would put it, maybe he's just a literary phenomenon, that everybody can sort of take up Nietzsche and uh, he becomes an embodiment of the form of thought that uh, they're pursuing. Maybe most of us have been heavily influenced by the the Nietzsche that taken up by Michel Foucault, Deleuze, Derrida, of course. It's hard to imagine, maybe even Martin Heidegger, it's hard to imagine their projects apart from his work. Maybe the most famous quote that we've all heard from Nietzsche comes from his on truth and lie in an extra-moral sense. What then is truth? A mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, and anthropomorphisms. Truths are illusions about which one has forgotten that this is what they are. That is, that the theme of 
language as being the only way of connecting truth. And that essay then just goes through and talks about that what you're doing in language is simply a symbolic or a kind of synthetic order that is removed from reality. And to imagine that you're dealing with the thing in itself as long as you're dealing in language is kind of the lie uh, that is foisted upon us in language. Of course, the fact that Nietzsche is taken up in Nazi Germany, that he's often cited as Hitler's favorite philosopher, has influenced the way that Nietzsche is often read and that he's imagined to be anti-Semitic when in fact he railed against anti-Semitism. But he also raged against democracy and egalitarianism, but also against nationalism. And so he can be quoted on a variety of subjects and uh, has been made to appear as a kind of version of Soren Kierkegaard, you know, that there is a reading of Nietzsche that his attack on Christianity is not an attack on the thing itself, which once you get into the details is obviously wrong. While his understanding of who Christ is, there is some ambiguity there. There's no question that he despises the Apostle Paul and his understanding of who Paul was. As Walter Kaufman puts it, he's easy to read, but hard to understand and maybe harder to understand than almost any other thinker. He says, I know my lot. One day my name will be linked to the memory of something monstrous to a crisis like none there has been on earth, to the most profound collision of conscience, to a verdict invoked against everything that until then had been believed, demanded, held sacred. I am no man. I am dynamite. He certainly is prophetic that the undoing of the God of the philosophers, the death of God as he describes it, is nearly prophetic in that the churches of Europe will in fact empty out. How a Lutheran pastor's son trained in classical philology would come to this insight, this brilliance, and then end his life in madness. That, of course, is the drama of Nietzsche's life, the the premonition of uh, the undoing of God for most of Europe, the emptying out of the churches. And the church uh, where his father preached still stands. And Nietzsche, who was the scourge of Christianity, is actually buried uh, in a plot next to the building. And his father would also be afflicted with severe physical and mental problems, with uh, violent headaches, epileptic strokes, amnesiac episodes. And he would die at the age of 35 when Friedrich was four. And Nietzsche would, all of his life, the death of his father, the absence of his father, seemed to impact uh, his understanding. Certainly, from a Freudian perspective, the loss of the father figure uh, is going to play a key role. Nietzsche himself, then, would have a breakdown in middle age. Even younger, he was forced to quit teaching because of his health problems. We don't know what the breakdown was. You know, the notion that he had syphilis, I think, has more or less been debunked. Some say that he had a neurological or vascular disorder that was inherited. But the condition caused repeated strokes and apparently is what his father 
uh, suffered from and what he suffered from. Maybe one of the key points and pivotal points in Nietzsche's life was his introduction in 1868 to uh, Wagner, the composer. Both Wagner and Nietzsche shared an interest in Arthur Schopenhauer, who saw a world governed by the insatiable striving of the will, and only the renunciation of worldly desire in Schopenhauer's understanding can free us from our, uh, our drives, and uh, aesthetic experience is one avenue. Both Wagner and Nietzsche then are pursuing uh, a kind of self-overcoming. Nietzsche disdained Schopenhauer's emphasis on the practice of compassion, but Wagner, of course, would claim to, to value compassion above all other emotions. But Nietzsche rejected 19th century kind of romanticism. Nietzsche crowns himself in a, a cruel post-Darwinian sort of naturalism that in the most controversial concepts, there is a ceaseless struggle for survival and mastery and the necessity of cruelty. Life is built upon a kind of survival of the fittest. It's not a fair comparison, but I sometimes think of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and his failed love affair. I, actually, Kaczynski learned Spanish so he could write, and it's said that he wrote in beautiful Spanish. But this correspondent said of Kaczynski, if only he could have formed a relationship with a woman, there would have been no Unabomber. And, of course, the possibility of uh, romance with the psychologist, uh, Lou Andreas Salome, I think is the way you say her name. It failed, and in a sense, uh, that maybe some would say, well, maybe he was not capable of such a relationship. But maybe uh, because of that failure, Nietzsche then turned to thinking as a kind of compensation for uh, the extreme emotional intensity that he felt that he could have turned uh, to other avenues. Uh, recently, the notebooks have been coming out. The notebooks are some, in some ways less inspiring than other parts of Nietzsche. Almost one thinks here of Heidegger and that when you get down to the unpolished thought. But one of the uh, things that appear is this paragraph. Do you also know what the world is to me? Should I show it to you in my mirror? This world, a colossus of energy, without beginning, without end, a firm, unshakable magnitude of energy that does not get bigger, does not get smaller, that does not expend itself, but only transforms itself as a whole unchangeable in size, an economy without expenditures and losses, but likewise without growth, without income encased by nothingness, as by its border nothing wasted, nothing infinitely extended, but laid into a definite space as a definite force, not a space that would be empty anywhere, rather as a force everywhere, as play of forces and waves of forces. This, my Dionysian world of eternal self-creating, of eternal self-destroying, this mystery world of the doubly voluptuous, this, my beloved, good and evil, without goal, if a goal does not lie in the happiness of the circle without will, if a ring does not have good will for itself, 
Do you want a name for this world, a solution for all its riddles, a light for you too, you hidden most, strongest, most intrepid, most midnightly? This world is the will to power and nothing else, and you yourselves are also this will to power and nothing else. And of course, part of the problem here is how do you translate or understand the, the will to power? Is it Schopenhauer's all-devouring will? You know, for Heidegger, the will to power, he says, is the last gasp of metaphysics, the basic character of all beings, which Heidegger uh, wants to displace with his idea of being in the world. Deleuze writes that the will to power is not force, but the differential element which simultaneously determines the relations of forces and the respective qualities of related forces. Maybe the idea here is that Nietzsche is not understanding power as a struggle or the will to power as a struggle for domination over others. Maybe it's just a struggle for power over oneself. Rather than fleeing from the will, as in Schopenhauer, maybe we should, uh, Deleuze, in, in Deleuze's understanding of Nietzsche, we should seek to harness it, master it, write it out. In Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche begins, supposing nothing were given as real besides our world of desires and passions. And then he concludes, supposing finally that we were to succeed in explaining our entire life of drives as the taking shape and ramifications of a basic form of the will, namely of the will to power, as my proposition has it, then we would have earned the right to unequivocally determine all effective force as will to power. Maybe it is just the will to power over himself. But Freud said that Nietzsche had a more penetrating knowledge of himself than any other man who ever lived or was ever likely to live, that in some way he had a depth of insight into the human psyche, the human condition, uh, that Freud himself would emulate. But there is this harsh side to Nietzsche that uh, can't be left out, and that is that sometimes we tend to, yes, he was appropriated by the Nazis, and yes, he was probably misread by the Nazis. But he did write that equality is the greatest of all lies. He divided humanity into a hierarchy of the weak and strong. He did indeed write diatribes against compassion in the Antichrist, as is pointed out in an article from the New Yorker that I'm referencing here. Uh, Hans Stark, who was the head of the admissions detail at Auschwitz, had a sign over his desk reading, Compassion is Weakness. It sounds very Nietzschean. I think the Nazis did indeed take inspiration from Nietzsche. But of course, what Nietzsche was rebelling against is also a dangerous form of thought. Maybe that which in uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis or Freudian an understanding is the, the thinking of the pervert who imagines that the regimes of truth, of an absolute truth, are set. And, of course, the, the debate here that is raised with, with Nietzsche, that people will rail against Nietzsche's uh, influence as a kind of undermining the notion of absolute truth, I guess that we should not forget, yes, but it's in the name of an absolute truth that the world's worst sorts of evil have perhaps been committed. 
But then there's a new form of evil that arises, I think, post-Nietzsche. We wouldn't want to attribute the inspiration of the Nazis to Nietzsche. But certainly there is this kind of rise of uh, being able to, to create a sort of truth, the, the world in which people can put their hands on the levers of truth or power and manipulate it accordingly, which is worse to think beyond good and evil, to think beyond a regime of truth, or to imagine that there are these regimes of truth that in fact can turn out themselves to be hideous. Isn't this the insight that in the secular period we're faced in with a kind of crisis of authority that Nietzsche seemed to predict, that when things are no longer arranged according to God, according to the divinely ordained understanding, Nietzsche predicted that the secularization of the world would turn in two directions. One would be a religious fanaticism that would, in fact, uh, attempt a kind of resistance to centralized government, and then a turn to a zealous adherence to the state on the part of non-believers. Isn't that uh, a prediction accurate? Nietzsche predicts a kind of self-devouring liberal democracy that will create conditions for an authoritarian rule. Disorder and instability will sow distrust in politics. Isn't that what we're facing? He says, step by step, private companies will absorb the functions of the state. He says that even the most tenacious remnants of the old work of governing, the activity, for example, that is supposed to protect private persons from one another, will finally be taken care of by private entrepreneurs. The distinction between public and private spheres, he predicts, will soon disappear, and the state will give way to the liberation of the private person. In one of his notebook entries from 1885 to 86, he looks ahead, quote, to a superior kind of human being that thinks to its preponderance of willing, knowing, wealth, and influence makes use of democratic Europe as its most pliable and flexible tool for taking the destinies of the earth in hand, for shaping the human being itself as an artist would. In a period in which we're seeing billionaires take over the space race and take up a, a kind of full leadership of the culture, Nietzsche's picture of authoritarianism rings true, that everything is in a sense reduced to commerce. But the idea of Nietzsche, he has in mind the pre-Socratic Greeks in which there is a resistance of the domination by one individual, that the Athenian idea is to expel individuals who threaten the balance of power. Uh, Nietzsche writes, I attack only a winner, and he goes after the domineering forces of his time, maybe God, certainly Wagner. The idea, though, is that power in some way, the struggle itself, is the thing. As Richard Rorty maintained, Nietzsche can be understood as a, a kind of flamboyant pragmatist. He says, we don't think of William James as a dangerous mind, and yet he too said, damn the absolute. There was the idea that the ultimate truth is that no claim should achieve some sort of dominion 
but maybe in this very dominion, even maybe being enshrined as a kind of deity, the truth becomes the untruth. As he says in one of his perhaps most succinct works on truth and lie in an extra moral sense, he gets at this idea that the very notion of the struggle, the, the idea of thought itself, the intellect, he says, is a means for the preservation of the individual, and it unfolds its chief powers, though, in simulation. For this is the means by which the weaker, less robust individuals preserve themselves, since they are denied the chance of waging the struggle for existence with horns or the fangs of beasts of prey. The idea here is that language and human thought is a kind of simulation. It is inherently a deception, flattering, lying, cheating, he says, talking behind the back, posing living in borrowed splendor, masked by convention itself. He sounds very Freudian at points, or maybe Freud sounds Nietzschean. He says, what indeed does man know of himself? Can he even once perceive himself completely, laid out as if in an illuminated glass case? Does not nature keep much the most from him about even his own body? to spellbind and confine him in a proud, deceptive consciousness, far from the coils of the intestines, the quick current of the bloodstream, and the old involved tremors of the fibers. Sounds very Zizakian, that is, the, the Lacanian-Freudian turn, that maybe is a Nietzschean turn, is the recognition that we do not have access to our own bodies, that our own bodies then are written over with the symbolic order, with language. Isn't this the Pauline picture of the flesh as a kind of principle that takes flight from the ordinary body and is written over then with the law, that we only perceive it then, not as it is in and of itself, as it is in reality, but as a kind of force that intrudes then uh, upon the symbolic order. That is, that we only recognize the reality of the body, the, the truth, not in it that we've encompassed it in our thought or our law or our regimes of truth, but we recognize the truth as an intrusion into the symbolic order. This is the Lacanian picture of the real intruding upon the, the symbolic. But it sounds a lot like Nietzsche when he says, insofar as the individual wants to preserve himself against other individuals, in a natural state of affairs, he employs the intellect mostly for simulation alone. But because man out of need and boredom wants to exist socially, herd fashion, he requires a peace pact and he endeavors to banish at least the very crudest war of all against all from this world. This peace pact brings with it something that looks like the first step toward the attainment of this enigmatic urge for the truth. That is that the desire for truth is a survival mechanism. It is what brings about the conventions of language. Nietzsche says they're not true products of knowledge, of the sense of the thing in itself. 
Is language the adequate expression of all realities? Yes. And of course, the presumption that he's fighting against is that it is. But he says only through forgetfulness can man ever achieve the illusion of possessing a truth, in quotes, in the sense just designated. If he does not wish to be satisfied with truth in the form of a tautology, that is, with empty shells, then he will forever buy illusions for truths. What is a word, the image of a nerve stimulus in sounds? But to infer from the nerve stimulus a cause outside of us, that is already the result of a false and unjustified application of the principle of reason. If truth alone had been the deciding factor in the genesis of language, and if the standpoint of certainty had been decisive for designations, then how could we still dare to say, the stone is hard, as if hard were something otherwise familiar to us, and not merely a totally subjective stimulation. He goes on to say, the thing in itself, for that is what pure truth without consequences would be, that, he says, is quite incomprehensible to the creators of language, and not at all worth aiming for. One designates only the relations of things to man, and to express them one calls on the boldest metaphors. A nerve stimulus first transposed into an image, first metaphor, the image in turn imitated by a sound, second metaphor. And each time there is a complete overlapping of one sphere right into the middle of an entirely new and different one. And of course, what lurks throughout Nietzsche's writing is that if language then is this simulation, then what it is circulating around, and again, this is very Freudian, Lacanian, is the abyss, the chasm. The more he probed the phenomena of thought and the different behaviors that result from it, he drew closer to the chasm and realized that was the underlying reality. Perhaps that is the impetus, of course, uh, is to put that off. That is, that's lurking throughout Nietzsche's writings, and it's going to come to the fore, is the notion that what is unconscious in our thoughts, in our actions, is this subterranean question that disguised itself outwardly. But what is being put off, then, is the understanding that underneath all of this, there is the chaos. As Nietzsche says, at every moment, chaos is still pursuing its work in our mind, concepts, images, feelings. And of course, this gets in part at his notion of the death of God. It's not just that meaning is undone, that what lurks beneath meaning is death itself, is the absence and the creation of God in this understanding is then a covering over of this absence. And so his picture, you know, he's actually taking up a phrase that comes down to us through Martin Luther, and Luther himself is attacking a theology of glory as he talks about it. The death of God in Christ on the cross was for Luther the point for challenging scholasticism, 
uh, scholasticism being the fusion of Greek and Christian thought, or what Luther called uh, the theologians of glory. Hegel will take up the Lutheran refrain, not simply as a challenge to the Aristotelian god of pure thought, but also as a new moment of the understanding of how God and those created in his image have to take death up into themselves, that this is an, a, a means of an authentic subjectivity. And so Hegel means something very different by God has died, that Hegel's tearing with the negative is a zeroing in on the Lutheran challenge to the God of the philosophers, but at the same time it's a challenge to the Cartesian notions of an ego-based subjectivity and reason. Nietzsche takes all of this a step further to declare God and the philosophy and morality attached to him is dead in this new form of radical subjectivity. And so there's a kind of shared recognition unfolding here in the themes of Hegel and his heirs. Though we often pit Nietzsche against Hegel, you know, Hegel's the systematic philosopher and Nietzsche's anti-system, yet they share a reaction to Kant and the uncovering of the subjectivity which is centered on the exposure of mortality and death. That is, we want to bring this fully out and tarry with it and talk about it. But Hegel and maybe Marx, Freud, Lacan, they're not presuming to go beyond the real or behind this kind of uncovered nihilism, but they're happy to dwell there. Although we often associate Nietzsche with a kind of nihilism, well, there's certainly the exposure of a nihilistic moment, but the point is to go beyond that moment and to not dwell in the nihilism. And so Nietzsche names the nihilism, but he calls for a new religious order, a new myth, the eternal recurrence of the same, where Hegel and his followers will privilege philosophy and presume it takes precedence over religion. Nietzsche shares with a kind of Kierkegaardian existentialism uh, the need for a new world order to break in. And, of course, to this, he's going to turn back to the pre-Socratics in his return to Dionysius, who is for him representative of passion, and his claim is that this was obscured by Plato. Nietzsche presumes the Platonic project, which he sees as being carried on by Christianity and modern thought, is aimed at controlling or covering over the passions, and this is actually a squelching of the power of creativity. And so, in a kind of Hegelian sense, but there is a turn to the negative or what he calls the tragic, the full acknowledgement of the Dionysian turn, that actually he then is going to equate with the light of Apollo. That is, that Plato's reason repressed the tragic Dionysian truth, which is simply that we live to die, and simultaneously dismantled the manner of dealing with it in human culture, that is, that Apollo would be connected with the, the, the cultured arts. And so he pictures very much in a manner that Freud will appreciate, that is, that Freud is going to pick this up directly. You know, Plato pictures passion as a black horse, which the charioteer reason is going to subdue with the white horse. 
That is that in the Freudian understanding, psychoanalysis is founded upon the notion that the ego is the center of reason and it can control the passions. That was the whole point of controlling the passions. But Nietzsche, like Hegel, assigns primacy to the role of death and finitude. And what he calls Socratism is the refusal to deal with human finitude. Very Freudian in a lot of this, uh, although there's a different impetus. And so his return to mythology, his uberman, his notion of an eternal recurrence, or an attempt, his attempt to recreate the pre-Socratic dynamism. And he recognizes that there is a success in human artifice, you know, the cultural art, literature, science of the Apollinarian order. But he says this is in direct proportion to its control or openness to the Dionysian passions of tragedy, emotion, rivalry. So the rise of the overmen must freely move beyond good and evil with its notion of some sort of objective standard. And of course, violence may be a necessity, but the goal is that these new heroes, these ubermen, will lead mankind into accepting that they are free spirits who can create a new order. And in this, he represents the break that inspired people like Martin Heidegger, that Heidegger presumes authentic existence has to confront the negating power of nothingness and death with a new power of freedom. Facing the fact of death is transformed by Heidegger into its own metaphysical freedom, which shows itself in its taking up of national socialism, which demonstrates perhaps the bloody aspect of the Nietzschean enterprise that he saw Hitler achieving. That is, the Dionysian forces require sacrifice, and as Freud, Lacan, and Zizek recognize, and perhaps Heidegger did not, the writer of the Black Horse ultimately takes his orders from his mount. That is, there is no controlling the passions. And so, ironically, Nietzsche located the heart of nihilism in what he perceived as an apocalyptic religion, Western religion. But he himself is proposing his own form of breaking in, his own form of the apocalypse. That is, that there is a, a need for a new world eschatology. In other words, Nietzsche, in his recognition of the pervasive nihilism inherent in Platonic and perhaps in a Christian Platonism, and his focus on that death has been obscured, he comes to a recognition of the need for the kind of apocalyptic breaking in that I think is true to the apocalyptic depiction of salvation in the New Testament, which brings us, strangely enough, to a key theme of the New Testament, which, as uh, Brian and Graffia has pointed out, that a lot of the themes that you get in Nietzsche and Heidegger and Derrida are actually there in the New Testament. But they take these themes and extract them and then miss. They think that in some way they're, they're using things like deconstruction or, in the case of uh, Nietzsche, the idea of resentment. You can find a very similar idea in Paul in his depiction of sin. That is, that with both, there's the notion of self-deception 
in which there is an inversion of values and a resulting attack on the person's or power of oppression, and you use morality as the guide. And so uh, this, many people pointed out, fits the Freudian notion of repression that many have said that Freud picks up from Nietzsche. But it certainly gets at the same structure, no matter where he got it. That is that Freud's denial of this borrowing, some people would say, oh, well, that is itself a kind of repression. That it is his own borrowing of the role of the superego, the notion of guilt feelings, and then the violent kind of resentment that arises in a bad conscience and a kind of false morality. And so Freud and Nietzsche undermined any notion of a stable subjectivity or any kind of intelligible knowledge or any kind of accessible coherence to human experience. There's an undermining you know, of the conscience, but just basic of human subjectivity. Think of the Freudian superego, the obscene superego, and the idea is that it's actually one's own vengeance that is being enacted against themselves. So we get caught up in this resentment, and it becomes a kind of masochism. Of course, this fits also with the depiction of a self-punishing nature, the self-punishing nature of sin, that uh, we punish ourselves then through the law. There are these unseen forces that are undermining our lived experience. Isn't that the New Testament, that there's these unconscious forces? And Nietzsche and Freud are tapping into this. Now, in this, Nietzsche's reading of Paul follows Luther's misreading of turning to Jesus, you know, uh, as a result of resentment and which needed relief from the demand of God's law. And so that's all loaded onto Jesus, that Paul projected his self-reproach onto Jesus and has Jesus accomplish atonement through his execution. That actually seems like a fairly decent portrayal of a lot of Christianity, that it is this kind of resentment, a suffering under the law. But, of course, the idea is it's misunderstood, Paul and, and New Testament Christianity. And I think that Nietzsche misunderstood also that in this understanding, Paul suffers from an introspective conscience, that he suffers from a guilty conscience. Nietzsche says as much. And the heavy requirement of the law, you know, his incapacity to keep the law, gives rise to his sense of, of guilt. And so he meets Christ and understands that, oh, now he can be delivered from the law, and this is the load that Christ is made to bear. This is actually just Luther's depiction, and of course what Nietzsche knew of the New Testament was through his Lutheran upbringing, that he's just assuming that Luther's conversion experience is really Paul's conversion experience. And so we tend to narrate Paul through Luther. But setting that aside, isn't Nietzsche correct that this puts on display a certain resentment of, against God that is there in the law? And isn't that then a form of Christianity that many people practice? But I, I, what I would say is the true depiction of Paul is an overturning of this resentment, that the access to a right understanding that Nietzsche imagines he's bringing out. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing, that Paul with Nietzsche presumes that people are 
completely deceived in regard to their own understanding. And so this is Paul's depiction. He says, I was without guilt in regard to the law. Paul didn't suffer from a guilty conscience. He considered himself righteous, zealous, beyond his peers, bearing the highest qualifications. There is no introspective guilt-stricken conscience here. That's a misunderstanding of who Paul is. But, of course, Nietzsche's reaction to this misunderstanding is quite insightful. That That is a kind of resentment, and Christianity as we have it often exists then in this kind of notion of delighting in the torturous existence of others, delighting in the, the destruction of other people. What could be more re- resentful than that? But that's not Paul, and Paul's Christianity, Paul is predicting a radical break with his former knowing, his former identity, uh, that he says, whatever things uh, were gained to me, those I have counted as loss. That is, that this whole notion, he actually, uh, he had a pretty good conscience as a Pharisee. There is no real ethical continuity based on the law leading to a guilty conscience. This uh, just Paul does not begin from what he knew as a Jew or his state as a Jew in understanding Christ, but he begins from a kind of apocalyptic understanding. And so there's a change in the whole notion. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count the rubbish. It's not that he needed the law to come to understand who he is in need of Christ. That's just a, a kind of misunderstanding. So Paul is not describing a progressive realization, a slow conversion, but he's like very much in a Nietzschean fashion, juxtaposing two worlds or two ways of knowing, two modes of identity, and which his former glory is now his shame. Paul is completely positive when he was a Jew, blameless in regards to the law. So strangely, the thing that Nietzsche dislikes most about Christianity is Paul. Morgan Rimpel does a dissertation on Paul and Nietzsche and claims that Christianity was a kind of psychohistorical development that is, in Nietzsche's opinion, resourced in Paul. That the idea is that in Nietzsche's examination, he saw Paul's conversion not primarily by the flash of light on the road to Damascus, but by a flash of insight as to how to use the crucified one for his own purposes. And so he deconstructs Paul's firsthand account of the event. And he says, essentially, what happened is this. And then uh, he describes this whole notion that Paul is just uh, reduplicating his own resentment and putting it upon Christ. That is, that Nietzsche's entirely novel reading, according to Rimpel, got behind Paul's words to his motives, his sublimated resentment, which were sourced in his need for relief from the crushing demands of God's law. Paul projected his repressed self-reproach onto Jesus, transforming the Savior's execution into an atonement, and the relief Paul pursued but could not achieve, that is, freedom from his guiltiness, became possible by creating a religious system that could supply something that did not exist, that is, forgiveness from a deity. It's all 
a, a dynamic that's made up. This is actually very Freudian, you know, the whole notion of the punishing superego, and we need to relieve the pressure from the superego, and what in Nietzsche's reading, uh, this is what Paul was doing, that uh, Christianity was fueled by resentment, and this then leads to nihilism. He has a little different view of Christ. He will uh, talk about Christ as possessing the warmest heart. He'll talk about Jesus as the noblest human being. Christ's problem, uh, like Paul's problem, but uh, slightly different in that Christ considered himself without sin, and yet he, in Nietzsche's depiction, considers sin to be the main problem of the human race. And of course, in Nietzsche's point, this is not true at all. This is Christ's error, that there was nothing of which men suffered, you know, more than their sins. He says that's, that's a mistake. And then to say that he was without sin, that is that he lacked first-hand experience in what he would talk about the most. And so he has this fantastic compassion for people who he himself cannot then be completely empathetic with because he did not actually have their experience. And so Jesus is this lack of experience, this kind of immaturity, this is his shortcoming, the Nazarene shortcoming, his untutored faith. And this is his depiction in Nietzsche's estimate, is an overestimation of human suffering that generated by sin. This is, uh, he assumes, the governing hypothesis of Jesus. And it's true that he'll think that all true philosophers are going to engage suffering. He just thinks that Christ has misinterpreted the psychic reality of human beings. But Nietzsche will also talk about the Nazarene as having become knowledgeable about love. In his life, there lies concealed one of the most painful cases of the martyrdom of knowledge from love, the martyrdom of the most innocent and longing heart, which never had sufficient of human love, which demanded love to be loved and nothing else. So he whose feelings are this, he knows about love. Nietzsche's picture is that at Calvary, Christ was kind of sobered up by the pain of Calvary, that he achieves a kind of enlightenment over the delusion of life, but of course this comes too late because the enlightenment kills him, the pain of, of this lesson. Uh, he doesn't survive the lesson. And so untutored faith in universal medicine, as he'll refer to Christ's uh, lesson, is an excess of the most fantastic compassion. And he pictures it as being a, a product of delusion. But he talks about the enlightenment at Calvary was with, not without value for the acquisition of knowledge. Uh, he derives an intellectual benefit, an enlightenment from his suffering. He celebrates uh, Jesus' profound instinct for how we ought to live in order to live as if we're in heaven, to feel oneself eternal. A, a new way of living, maybe not a new belief, but maybe the most powerful depiction of Jesus is, he says, Jesus is a combination of the sublime, the sick, and the childish, which sort of sums up uh, Nietzsche's psychobiography of Christ. In conclusion, the influence of Nietzsche through people like Foucault, Heidegger, Derrida, that they're going to take the Nietzschean program of deconstruction, naming the idols, you know, Foucault's genealogy 
of various forms of knowledge. So maybe it's Nietzsche's influence and of course the way that I've employed him in some blogs and uh, in various lectures is to say that Nietzsche gives us a critique of a Christianity that needs critique, that there is a Platonic form of the faith that he deconstructs, and rightly so. But at any rate, uh, this is an introduction to some of the thought of Friedrich Nietzsche. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.